Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to uh, be in worship with you this morning of our, of our King who is reigning over all things. Uh, thanks, Fritz, for leading us in liturgy and for reading our passage. Um, if, I have, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Murray, um, and I am the assistant pastor here at Redeemer. Uh, and it is so good to get to bring God's word this morning, particularly this morning, to get to close out uh, this series that we've been in since last September. Um, and just as an aside, I just, I just can't tell you what a joy it is to get to serve in this church, and especially with Fritz. Um, I, I hope you know what an unusual thing it is for a senior pastor to be so generous uh, with the pulpit um, to a young minister, and I'm just forever grateful for that. It's a gift to me, and I think it's not only a gift to me as a pastor, but as a follower of Jesus to remember whose church this is. Um, so, uh, well, well, like Fritz has mentioned, we are finishing our series in Revelation this morning, and we're kind of coming to this strange closing, which is sort of these final words from, from John. Um, in 2007, a professor at Carnegie Mellon named Randy Pausch, was asked to participate in a regular lecture circuit, a lecture circuit that's held at all sorts of universities, uh, called Last Lectures. And it was a lecture circuit intended particularly for elderly uh, faculty um, who were retiring, who were leaving the university system. And it was, it was an opportunity for them to reflect on their career and to offer advice and, and, and wisdom to, to their peers and students um, in light of their experience. So what was unusual about Pausch's situation, though, uh, was that he was actually still relatively early in his career. Uh, he was only 48 years old, which is young, right, in, in academic circles, uh, and yet he was retiring. He was leaving the university system, and, and it was actually because he had been diagnosed the previous year uh, with, with terminal pancreatic cancer, and had recently been told he only had three to six months of, of good health left, likely. And so, Dr. Pausch agreed to participate, and in 2007, he, he gave his last lecture, which he, which he called Really Achieving Your Childhood Dreams, in which he, he reflected on his life and his career, and attempted to encourage his, his academic peers and students as to how to lead a life now, knowing that your life will end. And it really struck a chord. Uh, I looked it up this week. As of this week, it has, the, the video recording of his lecture has over 20 million views on YouTube, um, another 500,000 on the TED Talks website. Um, it, it spawned a, a book co-written by Dr. Pausch called The Last Lecture, uh, which, according to Amazon, spent 112 consecutive weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It's been translated into 48 languages. Uh, it has uh, sold over 5 million copies in English alone. So clearly struck a chord, and I think that's because we, we all know that part of the way we know how to live in the present is by looking to the future. Our perspective on the future should and does shape how we live in the present. And, and we've seen that again and again all throughout Revelation, haven't we? You know, as John has been given and has recorded for the church these kind of cascading pictures of our world as it really is, both now in the present and in the future. And, as again, and again and again, you know, John has pointed us to the Lamb of God who sits at the center of all things, from whom all eternity flows and to whom all eternity is heading. And, and it, 
and while we all would probably have liked to close our series last week with this beautiful vision of this new garden, right? Where, where, where God is dwelling with his people and where it says that God's people reign with him forever and ever and ever in verse five. As much as we would have liked to stop there, what we see in our text this morning and reminded of is that Revelation is not, is not a fantastical picture that's, that's disconnected from reality. Rather, it's a letter. It is a letter written to real churches full of real people with real challenges. See, these were churches we found who, who faced near constant pressure to compromise their faith, you know, to walk away from the church, to add to the gospel, to take away from the gospel, to just fall in quietly with the world around them, or to face mockery, beatings, and, and even death for many. And so today we see, we see that the glorious images that we've seen all throughout this book, these visions, they end. And John turns his attention yet again to these Christians who are tempted to waver. And, and he offers final words in light of the reality of their present and their future. And, and if we're honest, we all understand the temptation to, to walk away, to give up. You know, following Jesus even, even for, for us who, who live in a very privileged place in the world as believers, it feels embarrassing sometimes, doesn't it? We feel other than, we feel misunderstood. I mean, even this last week, Fritz and I were, were taking uh, flyers to just the, the row of houses along, along Monoma to offer, them to, to offer them to come to our picnic. And what I was struck by the whole, the, the 20 minutes we were doing this, what I was struck by was how uncomfortable I felt. And I'm a pastor. We all understand that feeling, don't we? And so John's final words to these churches, these first century churches, are also final words to you and to me. And in this, in this epilogue, this closing to this letter, he, he he answers this question of, okay, how, how does this extraordinary book of Revelation with all of these glorious images how does it meet us in the middle of our ordinary present lives? And what we see in, the, in this passage, and this is our outline, is that Revelation meets us in the middle of our ordinary everyday lives with three things. With a, with a prophecy to keep, with an invitation to receive, and with a promise to cling to. A prophecy to keep, an invitation to receive, and a promise to cling to. So look with me uh, first at the first several verses, 6 to 11, where, where we see the revelation is a prophecy to keep. So this angel who's been showing John this, this glorious vision in, verse, uh, in, in verses 1 to 5 of, of the place God is preparing for his people and his people for, now in verse 6 shows us and, and, and calls to mind the fact that this vision is, is ending um, by actually bookending the, the vision with the same language that's used at the very, very beginning of the book of Revelation. He says, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. That phrase, words are trustworthy and true, these are the true words that goes all the way back to the very first three verses of Revelation. And this is actually the third time in, in just the last few chapters of the book that, that John has been given this kind of stamp of verification. That what he's being shown and what he's being told to write is trustworthy and true. 
First, in chapter 19, at, at the close of the vision of the, of the prostitute, John is told that these are the true words of God. Then in chapter 21, right in the middle of, of the vision of the new heavens and new earth, he's told these words are trustworthy and true. And again, here in chapter 22, these words are trustworthy and true. It's almost like we're being told as we get closer and closer to the end of this book, this is real. This is true. It is worth staking your lives on. John is being impressed with the reality that the revelation, again, it's not an abstract fantastical story. It's not something to just admire from a distance. These words are to be trusted as representing our reality both now and in the future because of who they come from. They come from the God of the universe who rules over and inspires the very spirits of his messengers to give these words. They are words to stake our whole lives on. But not only are they to be trusted, but we see in verse 7 that, that this is a prophecy again to be kept. And suddenly John hears the voice of the Lamb, the one who sits on the throne at the center, saying, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And that promise, I I'm coming soon, we're going to see it kind of weaves its way all throughout these last 15 or so verses. And we're going to come back to that promise. But, but for now, right on the heels of that promise, again, calls us all the way back to the very beginning of the book. Where in verse 3, we see this same blessing pronounced. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the, the sixth out of these seven blessings we've seen throughout the, throughout the book of Revelation. See, again, it's not to be admired from a distance. It's something we are to keep and I revisited Fritz's sermon on the first three verses of, of Revelation from last September. And Fritz talked about how this word keep, it means both this, this idea of protecting and guarding and cherishing, but it's not just that. It's also to obey it, to do it, to engage ourselves with. So how do we do it? Like Fritz has mentioned this morning even, the message of Revelation is not so much about us keeping, but it is about the reality that we are being kept. Right? We just have been soaking in this image of the new heavens and the new earth, this eternal city that, that's perfectly secure, where we enjoy perfectly intimate relationship with, with God. We're being kept. We're being kept over and over and over again. We're being told that all throughout this book. And that reality, John is saying, as he, as he comes to the end of this letter, the reality that you are being kept is to cause us to then go out and keep this book. So what does it look like to keep it? Verses 8 to 9 give us a, give us a picture. In verse 8, John, John falls to this angel's feet to worship him. But, but look at the angel's response. He says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Do you hear it? Those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Worship God. That's the central call of Revelation all throughout these images. And the picture we're given over and over and over again is the entire assembly of God's people standing before the throne, worshiping the Lamb. What we're told over and over again is that there are only two camps of people. 
those who worship the beast, and those who worship the lamb. There is no third option. And what John is telling us is that the only appropriate response to these wonderful, glorious, sometimes difficult visions in this book is to keep it, to worship God, to worship the Lamb. And yet the reality of Revelation, as we see in in verses 10 to 11, is that worshiping the Lamb must work its way into every part of our everyday present lives. Who we belong to, John says, must and will bear itself out into every nook and cranny of our lives. Verse 10, this angel looks at John and says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. John's told to leave this book open. And as we found, Revelation loves to borrow from the Old Testament to allude back to the Old Testament. Uh, Right at the beginning of our series, Fritz said, most commentators say, at least 500 Old Testament allusions. And this one is really clear. It goes back to Daniel, where Daniel is given a vision of the Son of Man. And at the close of the vision, Daniel is told to shut the book, to seal it, because the time is not near. And here we're told, John is told, leave it open, because the time is near. Again, we we find ourselves in Revelation living in the last days between Christ's first and second coming. And so the book is to remain open. Why? Because it's something we have to return to over and over and over again so that we might keep it, so that we might allow it to permeate the way we live our everyday ordinary lives. And that's because what we do reveals in some ways whose we are. What we do reveals whose we are. Look at verse 11. There's this kind of strange, strange verse, right? Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What do we do with that? See, what John is saying is that that to to live an entire life of worship is the call of this book. And one commentator puts it this way, uh, and, and I would just commend to you, Dennis Johnson, Triumph of the Lamb, is a wonderful, devotionally written commentary on Revelation that's just been a joy uh, to work through in this series. But the way that Johnson puts it is this, opposite heart orientations have opposite destinies. See, this is an encouragement. It's a warning, yes, but it's also an encouragement to those who belong to the Lamb, who are being kept by the Lamb, who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, to keep going, to persevere in ordinary day-to-day obedience, even when it looks like evil is carrying on freely, even when you feel misunderstood, even when you feel tired, discouraged, and other than. It's a call to fix your eyes on the God of the universe who promises to keep you, who has already called you holy in Jesus, righteous in Jesus, and then to allow that truth to work its way into every part of your life. Worship God. Keep this prophecy. Protect it. Treasure it. Engage your whole life in it as those who are kept. Now, my my grandpa on my mom's side uh, was a musician through and through. And uh, when he passed uh, my senior year of high school, I was given his electric guitar uh, because he he knew that I loved music. Um, And he also knew that I couldn't really play guitar. 
and yet uh, his guitar was given to me. And it's a beautiful guitar. Um, but the problem is, is that I don't know how, I still don't know how to play that guitar very well. And I actually have this guitar sitting out on a stand in, in our home office. And every time I see it, I admire it for its shape, its beautiful colors, the, like the beautiful patina that's on the frets and on the tuners. But I also feel a little pang of guilt because I don't play that guitar very much. And I know that it was something that was given to me, it was a gift given to me so that I, so that I might keep it. Not just to admire it from a distance, not just to protect and guard, but to play, to engage myself with. And yet when I remember <laughs> that my grandpa knew that I didn't know how to play the guitar, and he gave me this gift, it actually makes me want to learn to play it. See, like my grandpa's guitar, what John is saying in his last words in this, in this glory, is, is that this glorious reality that the God of the universe is also the lamb slain for us. And that he is currently ruling and reigning over all things. It's not something to simply admire from a distance. But it's something we're, allowed to, we're, we're intended to allow to permeate our whole lives. It's a trustworthy and true reality. So what does this mean for us? Well, two things. First, this is, this is just a point of privilege from a youth pastor um, who spent most of my time serving in the church with young people. Um, if we believe that these words are trustworthy and true, we, we have to let that trust permeate the way that we respond to hard questions. Whether that be from our unbelieving neighbors and friends, or whether it be from our struggling brothers and sisters, you know, I know most of you, if not all of you, know the statistics and the stories around deconversion and, and deconstruction in the church, especially in younger generations. And what I hear m most in those stories is that these were people who oftentimes felt that their questions were disregarded, shut down by the church. See, if we do trust this book, and not just Revelation, but the, but the Bible itself, if we do trust that these words are trustworthy and true, we should be able to trust that these words are strong enough to hold the weight of hard questions. And that means that our, our response to hard questions should not be to shush them, should not be to shut them down or push them to the side, but to honestly, willingly engage them, even at times to invite them. Because this book if these words are trustworthy and true, they can hold the weight of those questions. Second, you know, I think that this call to keep this prophecy, it means that there is no corner, no place in your life that is not packed full of eternal meaning and an opportunity to worship God. The soccer fields, the break room, the cash register, the family room, in your car as you're driving down the road on the Waterson and someone cuts you off. Every corner of your life, of our lives, is an opportunity to keep this prophecy, to live it. And I wonder, do we, do we live like that? Do we understand that? And that can feel far too weighty, if we're honest. Because like we talked about, we know the temptations we face to give up. And we all do give up, don't we? We all at times choose words that are 
seasoned with anger rather than love. We all at times have chosen Babylon, have chosen the beast over the lamb. And yet in the midst of that struggle, Revelation calls us to come back again and again to this open book and to remember where we are going and whose we are. To not only hear the call to keep, but to hear that we are being kept. So John says, because these words are trustworthy and true, Revelation meets us in the middle of our ordinary lives with a prophecy to keep. And yet, as we've made mention of, we fail to keep it all the time, don't we? Daily. So what hope is there? Look with me at the middle section of this text, verses 12 to 17, where, where we see that it's not only a prof- it not only meets us with a prophecy to keep, but with an invitation to receive. Verse 12, for the second time, we, we hear the voice of Jesus, the lamb on the throne, with the same promise, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. See, once more, the son of man, the, the lamb who was slain is revealed to be the very God of the universe who sits on the throne as the one who will judge all things. And he promises that he's going to bring his recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. That word recompense is a neutral word. It carries both the positive and the negative, the reward and the wages. What we're told is, what we're told again in Revelation is the truth is, is that we will all be known by deeds. One way or another, we will all be known by deeds. And so the question is, whose deeds will we be known by? See, verse, 16, verse 14 offers us this invitation. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. That series of seven blessings that started all the way back in chapter one now comes to this glorious close, calling us back again to chapter seven when John is standing and looking at a procession of God's people and they're described as those coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. See, one last time we're being told, whose deeds will you be known by? Will you be known by your own deeds? If we choose that, the only end we see in verse 15, and there's a life outside of the city. But if, we, but if we choose to be known by the deeds of Jesus, if we instead put aside our deeds and adopt the deeds of the Lamb done for us and given to us, what we find is that we are given the right to the tree of life. When I, when I turn from my own deeds and I adopt and rest in the deeds of Jesus for me, as the Redeemer, who was promised in the first garden, you know, the, the root of and the descendant from David, we see in verse 16. If I, if I look to Jesus as the Redeemer who, who died and was buried and then raised from a garden, so that I might have the right to a better and perfect garden where he himself is the bright morning star. There is no need for sun and where we reign with him forever and ever. It's an invitation 
to receive, to rest in. Put aside your deeds. So I want, you, I want us to hear this. Your place in that city, in that garden, is not dependent on your deeds. It is not dependent on your relationship status. It is not dependent on whether you have children. It is not dependent on the perception of your family by others. It's not based in your grades, students, or your playing time on the team. It's not based in your wealth, your stuff, your next career move. It is not even based in your obedience, in your prayer life, in your Bible study. It is based in and can only be based in the blood of the lamb which has washed your robes white as snow. See, the call of Revelation most fundamentally is not to do more. It is not to white knuckle, to try harder. It is to accept and to rest in the invitation to be known not by what you do, but by what has been done for you. And yet that invitation, it doesn't stop with us, does it? See, Revelation is, it calls us away from the temptation to, to give up on following Jesus, yes, but it also calls us away from the temptation to give up on chasing after our unbelieving neighbors, friends, family members. Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. We are invited as we receive this invitation to then join the chorus of the Spirit of God with the bride, that is the church, in extending that invitation to others to come take the water of life without price. We're called not only to receive this invitation, but to actively extend it right in the middle of ordinary Moments, small questions, small conversations, small invitations to neighbors, to friends, to coworkers, inviting them into our homes, inviting them into our lives, inviting them to church picnics. And to trust that as we do so, even as you feel that discomfort, even as you feel that feeling of otherness, to trust that the same Spirit of God who brought that invitation to us is inviting us to simply join him in bringing it to others. So, John says, Revelation is not only something we're to keep. It is an invitation to receive and extend. But John has one final thing he wants us to see. And so, once again, he points us back to the one at the center and to the reality that, that Revelation meets us in the middle of ordinary day-to-day life with challenges, temptation, and it meets us with a promise to cling to. Look with me first at verse 20. See, the promise we've seen throughout Revelation, and particularly in this passage, comes back one final time from Jesus. The one who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. It's the central promise that Revelation forces on us over and over and over again. Even in this passage, verse 7, behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon. And now in verse 20, and more emphatically, surely I am coming soon. It's a sure promise. And yet, 
It's a promise that was made 2,000 years ago. So what do we do with that? This, what do we do with this promise that, that is 2,000 years old and still yet unfulfilled? How is that soon? And yet when we step back and when we look at the entirety of God's plan of redemption, we've already found throughout Revelation that we are in many ways already living in the end times between Christ's first and his final coming. And what that means is that the very next thing on the to-do list of God's plan of redemption is the final return of Christ. And so what soon here means is is simply that, that we must live with expectation, prepared, because Jesus will not delay his return. He will return at the very first appropriate moment. And when he does, he will finally and fully make all things new. So it is sure, it is a sure promise. And then as we, as we see in verses 18 and 19, it's, it's also an unchanging promise. John warns against adding to or taking away from what's written in this book. There's no one and nothing who can alter the promise of Jesus to come soon. The promise cannot be added to. It cannot be taken away. It is unchanging and unflinching. And so John, as he's given final words for the church to which he writes, Jesus speaks directly to us. And he cascades over us, church, this promise again and again, behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. So stay awake. Endure. Remember who keeps you. And remember that he is coming again. And then as, as, we're, as we hear that promise again and again, as we cling to it, we're actually invited with John into his longing prayer for its fulfillment, right? Right at the end of verse, of verse 20. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Surely come, Lord Jesus. See, as we see a world that is under judgment, a world where where sin seems to reign victorious and evil and violence, particularly like that we've seen in the last two weeks in our own country against innocent children, Revelation invites us to cling to the promise of Jesus and to wait with expectation and anticipation for Jesus to come and deal with it, to make all things new. We're invited to long for it. I happened to be listening to a, a podcast on my, on my way home from a meeting on Thursday evening. And it was on the Waterson coming up to Poplar Level. And it was a conversation among three, three people, uh, none of whom claimed to be Christian. Um, and this conversation was around a book that one of them had recently published on, this feeling, on, on the feeling of bittersweetness and, and how longing actually makes us in some ways feel whole. This feeling of longing, how it actually makes us feel whole. And at one point, the interviewer, looks at the author and says, you know, you included this quote from C.S. Lewis. And so I instantly, my ears perk up. You use this quote from C.S. Lewis to describe that feeling. The quote she used uh, was was from um, Pilgrim's Regress, I believe, where Lewis uh, talks about this longing as the inconsolable longing for we know not what. And the interviewer said, you know, why did, tell me what that quote means to you. And, and when, when the uh, author responded, 
I was so surprised, I legitimately almost had to pull off the road. Uh, she responded, and this is a quote. I actually went back and listened to it again to write it down exactly. What, she said this, what I'm feeling most acutely is an extremely sweet sense of longing. It's, a, it's not a longing for anything in particular. It's like a longing for a state that I call the perfect and beautiful world. It's this feeling that there exists somewhere a more perfect and beautiful world than the one we currently know. And there's something about the longing for that state that, that is sweet and that brings you a little bit closer to that which you long for. See, we all, Scripture tells us, we all have eternity in our hearts. We all have a longing for something better than this world. And yet what Revelation tells us is that that more beautiful and perfect world is not hypothetical. It is real. And so it meets us in the middle of ordinary everyday life with an extraordinary promise that we're invited to long for, a promise that Jesus is surely coming soon, and that when he does, he will usher that beautiful and perfect world in. And here's the crazy thing, that as we, as we grow in our longing for Jesus' return, we actually hasten it we actually find that we get a little bit closer to it. So what does this mean for us? I think there's lots of ways that we can unpack this idea of, of this promise that we can cling to and long for, but, but I just wonder what your response is to bad news. Whether it's from a friend who's received a, a difficult diagnosis, or it's the news of violence that we've seen over the last several months across the world in our own country, where does your heart go? Do you find yourself bitter? Maybe, maybe even resentful at the world? Do you find yourself despairing at the sight of a world that's blind to its own thirst? Do, do, you wanna, do you kind of wanna just throw your hands up to shut yourself off from it, to close the doors and just wait out the storm? See, Revelation offers us something, even as we feel righteously angry, angry at evil, Revelation offers us something more. It offers us a way to actually move towards those who weep, to move towards those who mourn, rather than to shush them, rather than to separate ourselves from them. Revelation actually invites us to join the longing for something better and to bear witness with and for them and to them of the glorious promise that there is something better that there is someone better to, to long with the saints in Hebrews 11 for a better country, a promised world where Jesus will return and wipe every tear when longing will cease to join the chorus of the saints throughout history. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's an invitation to long. It's a promise to cling to. And so, as we, as we come to a close, we also come to the end of Revelation. We're reminded one last time that, that our lives in the present ultimately only make sense in light of this life's future. 
And, and again, we all understand that, don't we? Dr. Plausch understood it. The 20 plus million people who've watched his last lecture certainly understand it. And yet we all long for lives that are shaped by something more than the reality that this life will end, don't we? And, and that is what we find in Revelation. Because what Revelation invites us to do is to allow our lives to be shaped by the reality that this life is actually merely the beginning. The title page to the great story, as C.S. Lewis says, that there is one like the Son of Man who's seated on the throne of all history, past, present, and future, and who invites us to wash the tattered robes of our own deeds in the fully and eternally cleansing blood of the Lamb, and who promises the day is coming soon when he will return without hesitation, will wipe every tear away, and when death itself will be put to death and all things made new. And so we wait. We wait with longing, we wait with expectation, and as we wait, John offers us the only thing, the only thing that is sufficient for these things. And without, I, I won't even comment on it. John says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the fact that it is not far off from our present reality, but that it is deeply concerned with our present reality. God, we thank you for the promises we've seen again and again throughout this book of your purposes, of your sovereignty over all things, even in the midst of a world under judgment. Father, we ask that as we leave uh, this book, God, that you would help us to not leave it behind, but to keep it open, to return to it again and again, to be reminded that we are kept so that we might keep it. And as we go out from here, Father, to keep it, we, we pray, Father, that you would help us to long for something greater than this world. Help us to join the chorus of the saints. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.